Well, there is a popular book known by its title, Your Best Life Now. And if I were to entitle my sermon, Your Best Life Now, you would just think what an incompatible title that would be based on what we just read about the world's hatred and the opposition of the world. No, the Christian life here on this side of the River Jordan is not your best life now. And the scripture is quite plain with us about that reality. It doesn't try to sugarcoat or gloss over difficult realities, but it tells us straight up what is the deal or what is the situation. Jesus is doing that here in this passage before us. And it is a difficult passage, but there's no sense pretending that it's something other than it is. It's encouraging, in a way, actually, to to read the way life is, truly, in the Scripture. And this is what Jesus tells us in John 16 and verse... 1 and verse 4. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. Verse 4. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes you may remember that I told them to you. If Jesus told us you're going to live your best life now and then we face the opposition of the world, we'd be like, what is this sham? What is this inconsistency between what Jesus told us and the way things actually are? But as it is, Jesus has told us before it happened so that we won't be disillusioned and confused when we actually face these things. So let's look at this difficult section of Scripture this morning. And in the way that I just described, let us actually be encouraged by it. It's good that somebody actually knows what's going on and told us ahead of time, which means that he sees the big picture And we are in His hands and we are being guided by Him and preserved by Him. And He's going to help us get through it. After Jesus insists forcefully that we Christians must love one another in the previous section, Jesus strengthens His point that we have to stick together by introducing this idea here in this section that we are going to be hated by what He calls the world. So Jesus isn't changing the subject completely. Since the world is going to hate us, we ought to make sure all the more that we at least love one another. See the connection between this and what goes before. But that's all that I'm going to really say about the connection between the preceding section and this. As Jesus moves on from talking about loving one another, so will I. And we'll now turn our attention to the main idea of the section of Scripture before us, which is that disciples of Jesus will be hated by the world. And let's review with a brief... Let's begin with a brief review of the concept of the world. In John's Gospel, the world is not every person without exception, nor is it the physical earth and sky but rather it's something like the ungodly culture or the ungodly society of mankind. 
the world in John's Gospel is most often used not as a spatial location somewhere, but rather the world is used to denote unbelievers who belong to that ungodly culture, that ungodly society of man who are part of that system. As early as John chapter 1 and verse 29, we read about the sin of the world. The famous verse, John 3.16, corroborates that the world needs salvation. Otherwise, it will perish. John 6.51 tells us that the world needs Jesus to give it life. John 8.12 tells us that the world needs Jesus to give it light. So again, the world in John's Gospel is the perishing, lifeless, lightless, sinful society or culture of mankind. And as I said at the beginning, Jesus doesn't at all try to gloss over or sugarcoat the reality that the world hates Jesus and by extension hates His disciples. We see in the pages of Scripture that Jesus was hated by the world, don't we? After all, in the end, He was crucified. And it wasn't a crucifixion by a small few against the will of the masses, but rather, by the time of His death, the crowds were shouting out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Notice that in Jesus' case, the world who hated Him was largely a religious world. It wasn't so much the tax collectors and the sinners who were pushing for Jesus to be crucified, though doubtless they were among the masses that were shouting out, crucify Him. But the, Im the impulsive body, the body that gave impulse and initiative to Jesus' death was rather the Sanhedrin, that ruling religious body over the Jews who wanted Jesus' death. This shows us that the world is not just compromised of those out there, so to speak. The world is often comprised also of those in here, so to speak. The reality then is that you can be irreligiously part of the world, the ungodly and unbelieving culture of mankind, or you can be religiously part of the world, which is that unbelieving, ungodly culture of mankind. The crux of the matter is not, do you go to church? Well, if so, you're not of the world. Do people think well of you? Well, if so, you must not be of the world. No. Nah. The crux of the matter is this. What is your relation to Jesus? Do you presume to sit in judgment over Jesus? Deciding whether or not Jesus meets your standards. Whether or not Jesus' commands are worth obeying. Whether or not Jesus' invitations are worthy of acceptance. And are you prepared to crucify Jesus if He doesn't measure up? 
or if he offends you in some way? Is that your attitude to Jesus? Or, like Thomas after the resurrection, will you fall down at Jesus' feet, so to speak, and cry out, my Lord and my God? That is the difference between the world and the disciples of Jesus. There are those inside the church as well as outside the church. Those who are religious as well as those who are irreligious. Who will not bow and cry out, my Lord and my God. Who will not, as Psalm 2 commands, kiss the Son with that kiss of deference lest he be angry. There are those inside the church as well as outside the church who will not have this man rule over us. There are those inside the church as well as outside the church who want to edit and censor and filter Jesus. Those in our present day who believe Jesus needs to be filtered who believe Jesus needs to be edited, who believe Jesus needs to be censored and modernized and updated to suit the modern palette. They are of the world. No matter how Christian their lingo is, whether you call them a bishop or an archbishop or a pope, whether you call them a priest, whether you call them a pastor, whatever their name, People who think Jesus needs to be filtered, Jesus needs to be edited, Jesus needs to be modernized. Those who think the man from Galilee was a man of his times, and we need to translate him into the modern vernacular, not so much the words, but the ideas. Those who think that the ideas of this man from Galilee are antiquated, outdated and irrelevant and we need to update him. Those who think that they are too offensive and we need to edit him or filter him, they are of the world. Even if they walk around in vestments, even if they have ecclesiastical titles, they are of the world. These would crucify the unedited unfiltered Jesus were he born of a virgin today or at least cancel him because to crucify him wouldn't be very tolerant and open minded would it I want to stress the point that the religious people who are still part of the world do hate Jesus and his disciples too Consider the book of Acts. There is so much opposition to Jesus and His apostles from the religious world. And how often do you read in the book of Acts about the village bad boys and criminals and thugs opposing the apostles? Hardly at all, if at all. I didn't research it thoroughly this week, but I can't think of even one instance off the top of my head. Jesus says as much here in John chapter 16 and verse 2 when He tells us that the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that He is offering service to God. In other words, Jesus is telling us beforehand that much of the opposition is going to come from religious people. So therefore the world which is going to hate you is going to be comprised not only of irreligious people 
But people who think that they are offering service to God. It's religious people too. Church history bears this out. While the church has experienced her fair share of persecution at the hands of the irreligious, certainly think of the 20th century persecution under atheistic communist regimes, for example. The church certainly has suffered at the hands of the irreligious. But let's not pretend that the church hasn't experienced opposition to the advance of the gospel also from within itself. There was the Protestant Reformation, of course. And how timely today, 504 years to the day after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door at Wittenberg. Look at the opposition to Christ and His Gospel, the disciples of Jesus from within the church. Those men were persecuted who preached salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone, and who said no to popery and yes to the authority of Scripture alone over mankind. And at other times, many other times, promoters of the truth had been marginalized, ostracized, persecuted, and even martyred by those within the church. Do you know what the church did with the first man to translate the scriptures from the Hebrew and Greek into the English language? They killed him. William Tyndale, look it up. And John Wycliffe, who came before, was a forerunner in whose ideological shoes Tyndale stood as far as translation of the scriptures goes. He was posthumously condemned as a heretic for suggesting that the scriptures be translated, ought to be translated into the common language of the common people. And as well as opposing other unbiblical errors of the church in his day. There are many who belong to the world, who are still in the world, who are themselves religious people, even under the name of Christian. They don't bow at Jesus' feet and cry out, My Lord, my God. They filter, they edit, they censor, and they crucify or cancel as need be if Christ Jesus and His disciples don't suit their tastes. Make no mistake, however, the irreligious world would crucify Jesus too if He were born of a virgin today. The Bill Myers of the world, the Richard Dawkins of the world are no friends of Christ either. I'm not here just to single out the church folk. Both the religious and the irreligious of the world hate Jesus. And they hate His followers. As I've already pointed out, we've seen irreligious opposition to Jesus throughout church history. And the book of Revelation indicates that it will be this way at the end also. We will explore the symbolism more tonight in our Old Covenant series as we examine the lampstand in the tabernacle. But in God's providence, we turn to the same section of Scripture even this morning. And suffice it to say that the two witnesses of 
Revelation chapter 11 are representative of the witness of the church as a whole, the totality of God's people. And what happens to them? In Revelation 11.7, we read that the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the streets. And what will be the reaction of the world to these events? Verse 10 goes on to say, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. In other words, they're glad they're dead. They're glad they're gone. This is a theme of the book of Revelation. The beast and those on his team hate God and hate God's people and try to kill them and rejoice in their deaths. Christian, for the time being in Barbados, you're most likely only to get cancelled. Rest assured, for the time being, you're likely only to be metaphorically crucified for being a true disciple of Jesus. You will though, and you would, post up, post up something about the exclusivity of Christ Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. This means that the Muslim religion is false. This means that the Hindu religion is false. This means, post something like that up on Facebook and see what happens. You will get metaphorically crucified. You will get canceled. But in many parts of the world, there is literal physical persecution and martyrdom of our brothers for the sake of the name. And there is an aggressive secularism and pluralism gaining ground here in the West. Listen carefully. Before long, physical as well as ideological and, and philosophical and digital hatred and persecution may soon be the cost of identifying with Jesus. Jesus teaches us here that the world is always going to hate the disciples of Jesus. Reckon with this now before we get there. Settle it in your mind now before we get there. As Jesus says in John chapter 16 and verse 1, to keep from falling away. Jesus has told us these things to steal us to steady us in the face of great opposition. It should be no surprise if and when it happens. It shouldn't catch us off guard when we suffer persecution. We shouldn't say, I wasn't ready. We shouldn't say, I never thought that could happen here. We should be like, well, we enjoyed some relative peace and quiet. But isn't this just what Jesus told us? That there's an hour coming when people who kill you are going to think that they're doing a service to God. Right? And the irreligious folks will get in on it too. It's not just the religious folks that hate Jesus and His disciples. 
when it becomes culturally permissible and possible to not only metaphorically crucify, crosses will be erected. You understand? When there's no longer the restraint of, the, of it being a cultural faux pas, then Christians will be rounded up. Christians will be beaten up. Christians will be executed. It happens already in places in the world. This is not... This is not doomsday stuff. This is not like fantastic, imaginary, phantasmic, I think I meant to say, imaginary thinking. When our culture progresses away from, and I say progresses a little bit tongue-in-cheek, when our culture progresses away from the traditional moorings of a Judeo-Christian ethic and laws based in basic human equality, freedom of speech, etc., etc. And when a more tolerant and open-minded ideology ascends, those of us who are not quite so open-minded will find that we've drawn the short end of the stick. So reckon with it now. Right? It would be, it would be shocking if all of a sudden it happened on Tuesday and you never thought of it. And it's like, whoa. But think about it now. Reckon with it now. And prepare now to follow Jesus then. That's one application of this passage. Approaching the second application, let's consider now why the world hates Jesus and by extension, His followers. And here's where we will look at this passage in closer detail rather than just gleaning its main point. Look at verses 18 to 20. Jesus is teaching us here that His law is to be our law also because of our identification with Him. Insofar as we identify with Jesus, we will suffer with Him. The only way to escape is going to be to disown and to deny Jesus, as Peter did three times before the rooster crowed on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. This is a basic principle, and this is the big big idea of this passage, isn't it? If we get in the car with Jesus, so to speak then we will travel the same road as He does, and we will end up in the same place as He does. That's the basic idea of this passage. 15.21 and 16.3 tell us that even religious people who persecute Jesus and His people do not actually know God. We've already touched that point, and so I won't belabor it. You can be a religious person and still be part of the world and not on Team Jesus, so I won't belabor that point. 16.1 and 16.4 tell us why Jesus told His disciples these things. It was to strengthen them for impending opposition. It's actually, weirdly, more encouraging if a military commander says, hey, i got to go, but there's some uh, opposing forces on their way, they should be here in about two hours, and then they show up and you're ready rather than if he just leaves without telling you and you get blindsided. Right? So Jesus is telling us now so that we're ready. That's what 16.1 and 16.4 tell us. So this leaves us then 
by process of elimination, we've kind of conceptually covered the whole passage here, except for one section in the middle. Chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. What does Jesus mean when he says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. And what does he mean when he says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Of course, it can't mean that they wouldn't be guilty of any sin. For we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. What this means then, is that the people to whom Jesus spoke and among whom He did His works, they incurred an additional guilt which they would not have incurred otherwise if Jesus hadn't spoken among them and hadn't worked among them. Their rejection of the teaching of Jesus and the works of Jesus renders them culpable of an unbelief which, they wouldn't, which wouldn't have been possible to exercise if Jesus hadn't come and stood before them and spoke to them and taught them. You can't disbelieve in something you never heard, something you never seen. But Jesus coming and speaking to them and doing works among them rendered them culpable of disbelieving in the incarnation of the Son of God, disbelieving in the earthly ministry of this, the Son of God. The teaching of Jesus and the works of Jesus ought to have solicited belief, but instead they responded with unbelief And so they incurred a situational guilt for responding to Christ's advent in the manner they did. That's what's meant by that section there. It's not as puzzling as it looks at first. Was there just cause for rejecting Jesus' teachings and works? The answer to that is no. Thus, as it is written and cited in verse 25... They hated me without a cause. To the contrary, rather than there being a cause to hate Jesus, there was great cause to love Him, wasn't there? Jesus came and had compassion on the crowds as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus came to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind. Jesus came... For that poor fellow by the waters of Bethesda, who had just given up hope. Jesus came along, and the guy starts telling him the story of how there's no one to carry him in, hoping that maybe Jesus could at least just pick him up and put him in the water when the time comes. But Jesus did so much more for him than that. Think of all the individuals whom Jesus touched in a like manner. Jesus came to heal the sick, to give light to the blind. Jesus came to touch the leper. Consider, we've been experiencing a little bit of it with the COVID regulations and the social distancing. Consider the hardship of literally never being touched, never being hugged, never being embraced. For a child... Never to be balanced on a mummy or daddy's knee. Like, this is not normal, is it? The lepers were the outcasts of society who nobody would 
touch. And we read, at, at least in one place that I can recall, but possibly more, before Jesus healed the leper, he touched him. Aside from the healing, imagine how the leper felt when somebody reached out their hand in love, in compassion, in kindness, and touched it. And then to be made whole. Jesus came to call the hungry and the thirsty to eat and to drink. And then as we have read, Jesus came to lay down his life for his friends. Was there just cause to hate this man? Not at all. To the contrary, there was so much cause, so much reason. There is presently so much cause, so much reason to love that man from Galilee. But to take hold of the bread of life and the living water, Jesus taught that one must relinquish all else. One must come with empty hands. One must acknowledge that he is hungry and thirsty. If one wants his sin to be taken away, confessed and laid upon the head of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he must admit that he has sin. He must confess it. If one wants Jesus to lay down his life for him as a friend, he must admit that he deserves by rights to die. And therein lies the rub. That's what makes it difficult for people. The proclamation of grace and forgiveness is okay so long as you don't dare suggest that there is anything specific in your hearer which might require grace and forgiveness. Everybody, everybody claps when a preacher starts talking about sin and justice until he says, why are you clapping? I'm talking about you. Right? We're all okay with the gospel message that there is sin and that sin may be forgiven through Jesus Christ until the preacher says, I'm talking about you. And then it's awkward. And then it's difficult. And right there and then, hatred wells up in the hearts of those who are in the world. For Christ and for His bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded people who still believe things like that. Jesus taught that He would forgive sin. But of course, in order to have your sins forgiven, you must admit that you're a sinner. Jesus taught that He would give Himself as the bread of life for you to eat. Jesus stood up and cried out, Come to Me, whoever's thirsty. But to eat and to drink, you must admit that first you're hungry and thirsty. 
the apostles proclaimed the same message. Martin Luther said that preaching is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. But the message that I, as a beggar who has found bread, deliver might be offensive to you if you think that you're not a beggar who needs bread. The world hates us and hates Christ for this message that we are beggars, that we are lepers, unclean, blind, paralyzed, that we are Lazarus in the grave for four days and we stinketh. The world doesn't like this message. That we are sinners. As John 3.20 says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. There's a story I once heard and I'm sure certain in fact that some of you have heard the same one of a man dropping off a sister in Christ at home a number of months ago somewhere in the world and he was verbally accosted by a neighbor for leaving his headlights on while idling outside this sister's house as she went inside. And why was this neighbor so angry? Because the neighbor was using drugs on his front step and didn't want the light to shine on him, exposing what he was doing. So he came angry and cursing, turn your headlights off. This is a metaphor for why the world hates Jesus and his followers. It's because our headlights are on. Exposing what they're doing. Here's the second application. Make sure the world hates us for the right reasons. Was Jesus obnoxious? No. Even in pointing out hunger and thirst, his attitude was, I will feed you and give you drink. Even in pointing out sin, his attitude was, I will lay down my life to redeem you. Jesus was gracious and redemptive, even as he left his headlights on. even as he shone his light into the darkness. Some Christians today seem to want to shine their light into the darkness merely so that they can see better where to cast stones. Some use a sharp implement, the sword of the Spirit, to cut as warriors, to kill, instead of to cut as surgeons to heal. No wonder the world hates those who leave their lights on only so that they can see better how to throw stones, where to throw stones. 
No wonder the world hates those who use the sword of the Spirit to kill instead of to heal. Let us, to the contrary, be gracious and redemptive even as we shine our lights into the darkness so that when we are hated, it's for the right reasons. Let us be like Christ Jesus who are willing to go, to come, to be sent, to descend, whatever verbiage you want to use, into the world. Not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Let's be like the Lord Jesus. Not be hated for the wrong reasons, but be hated for the right reasons. The world is going to hate us, but let's make sure that we are gracious and redemptive in our interactions with the world so that we're hated for the right reasons.